Well, hello there, and welcome to the Apartment Building Investing Podcast. I am your host, Michael Blank. I am excited that you're here to learn all about apartment building investing, the number one way to become financially free. And a lot of you have been asking, hey, what about Dealmaker Live? Oh my gosh, it's, of course, middle of July, and we don't know what's going to happen in July right now, uh, but it's very difficult right now to sell tickets to a live event. Would you agree? So what we did, instead of canning it and skipping it for a year, that would be a shame, is we've turned it 100% virtual. It's going to be the same weekend, July 16 to 18, and it's going to be, uh, well, not in uh, in Dallas anymore. It'll be online, but you can get tickets at dealmakerliveevent.com and check that out. We're going to have the same group of speakers, and we're going to have some really exciting networking opportunities using some really cool technology that I'm really excited about because one of the main benefits of going to live events is the networking. Now, we can't replicate it exactly, okay, but we can get really darn close with this new technology we have, and I'm really excited. I'm not going to tell you what it is, but it's going to be really cool. So make sure you join us right now. The tickets are the most affordable. They will start getting more expensive as we get close. The main benefit is that we are not capped at 500 because we're online. So that is a major, major advantage of that. So grab your tickets at dealmakerliveevent.com and make sure you join us. Now, today on the show, we have Jason Perro. And what I love about Jason is he's obviously he's a full-time multifamily investor. He quit his own job and got his wife to quit his own job. And like so many people who are thinking real estate investing, he got started with single family house investing a long time ago. He's kind of a slow learner, actually, if you think about this, Jason, but he's sometimes not much different than I was. Uh, because when I got started with real estate investing, it was single family house investing, and it was only me uh, before I learned that, my gosh, it's actually multifamily. And it's not just me, it's a team and it's investors. And he he made that discovery the slow way. And we are obviously to change all that. We'll tell you, no, you can skip the single family house investing. You can go right to multifamily. And you don't have to do it on your own. You don't actually need the experience. You don't need your own cash. What you do need to do is build a team and raise capital. And it's unbelievably easier to, to, to do than people think. And so we're here to change that as well. On the show also, we talk about current times because of the coronavirus. And because Jason not only owns many hundreds of units, he also property manages them himself. He has very good deep insight into from the top all the way down to what the impact of, of all of this is short term to our industry as well as medium term as well. So we talk about some of the issues we're going through right now as operators, what we're doing about them, what we're telling our investors. So it is going to be an awesome show you're not going to want to miss. All right, with that, let's do this. You're listening to the Apartment Building Investing Podcast, where we'll talk about all aspects of buying apartment buildings with a special focus on raising money from others. And now, your hosts, Michael Block. Now, before we get the show, I want to say that now is a great time to invest in yourself, learn more, and connect with others so you can build your support network. I think we're going to get some very, very interesting buying opportunities throughout the year. And now a lot of us are at home, and it's a great time to invest in your education. So we opened up our DealMaker Mastermind program. It's super affordable, and um, it's basically an online forum where people connect with each other. And because people are paying a little bit of money every month, it is uh, quite a bit different than our, our Facebook group, which is Apartment Investor Network. It's a, a closed private Facebook group that you can join as well. But Dealmaker Mastermind is kind of our environment of dealmakers. And right now it's only $49 a month. And you can get started right now by going to the michaelblank.com forward slash DMM for Dealmaker Mastermind. We've had it for, for many years and it's a great way for you to connect with other people, network. We've had companies grow out of that. We've had joint ventures and deals come out of that. Super excited about that. It's really right now 
our way to helping you connect in an affordable way to really shift, make the shift from where you are now to where you want to be by connecting with a community of supporters. So head on over to michaelblanc.com forward slash DMM to find out more and hopefully you can connect with us there. So let's get right in the show with Jason Perro. Here we go. Jason, welcome to the show today. Hey, thanks for having me, Michael. I'm happy to be here. That's awesome. Uh, you know, I, it's always great to hear the story of someone who is made the shift from full-time employee, but also got your wife from full-time employee. That's pretty cool. So give us a little background on all that and how you got started. And then we'll kind of get into your story a little bit. Okay. So my wife and I got started. We purchased our first duplex a week before 9-11. So almost 20 years ago. And we both worked in medical sales. So she was a pharmaceutical sales rep. Uh, I worked in medical device sales. Spent that first decade of, of um, you know, the century, just buying, you know, duplexes, triplexes, that type of thing. Occasionally we get a 20, 30, 40 unit type of property. So 2010, she was laid off from her job. Uh, by that time, you know, we had been married for eight years, had two kids. It was a perfect time for her to be able to leave her day job, stay at home with the kids and, uh, and work on the business and the areas of the business that she would contribute, just being able to not be part of corporate America. And uh, I left my day job in 2012. By that point, we had grown to 300 units. What we owned together had no investors, no partners, just something that we self-funded along the way. Um, and then fast forward to today, you know, we've been we've been doing this full time for the last eight years. Since then, we've started syndicating, and and you know, about two thirds of our portfolio is stuff that we own just her and I, no partners. And then about a third of that is, is stuff we've syndicated. So we're right at about a thousand units right now, all in Erie, Pennsylvania. Yeah, that's great. So there's I mean, yeah, a variety of questions I have for you. One of them, uh, why did you start getting into real estate in the first place? So the big thing, you know, I grew up like a lot of people. I, I, I wasn't poor, but we weren't rich. And, and I knew nothing or learned nothing about money until I started working. You know, I had jobs all through high school and college. Still didn't know anything about money. I just knew how to earn it. But when I got out of school, I, I said, gosh, I, I really want to figure out how to make the most amount of money. I want to be a millionaire. How do wealthy people do it? And I had an internship with a financial planning company that the one thing that really where the light bulb went off my head, that real estate was the thing for me. Uh, I was going helping the senior planners go through their clients' accounts. And I was going through different folders and, and looking at clients, uh, their clients' portfolios. And there was a dual income couple. It was a, I think it was a doctor and lawyer made about $600,000 a year and their net worth was maybe a few hundred thousand dollars. And then there was another couple who were two school teachers, maybe made 75, 80,000 a year, but they had a net worth of 5 million. I'm like, holy smokes, how, how is this even possible? And again, knowing nothing about money, their planner or account manager said, well, yeah, most of that's in, in real estate. They're school teachers, but they buy a couple duplexes a year and they've built wealth and build passive income that way. So that was, that was the catalyst for me. And then of course, you know, red, rich dad, poor dad, the millionaire ne next door, and just started feeding my mind with all sorts of goodness uh, as far as trying to get me started on my real estate journey. And then I just started meeting people and, and probably half of them would say, you know, you don't want to be a landlord. Why would you ever invest in real estate? You don't want to fix, you don't want to deal with tenants. You don't want to have to deal with toilets in the middle of the night and things like that. But the flip side is the guys that I met that that were real estate investors. And at the time they seemed massive to me, you know, they may have 30 or 40 units, but they lived a really great life and they had, you know, they had a, you know, some nice passive income on top of their day jobs that, that they had. And I, I looked at that and said, well, they don't seem too bogged down by, by tenants, you know, tenant issues and, and trash and things like that. And I was, you know, I was early twenties at the time. So 
I just, you know, I was young enough and dumb enough to, to start in this business. And, I, and I'm very glad I have. I mean, I, I don't regret, I don't really regret any, anything for the last 20 years. So when you, when you got started, um, what was your initial plan with regards to real estate? So the initial plan was to become a millionaire. I mean, it was a basic, like a basic goal. And uh, I mean, since then, obviously things change and, and you really evolve your thinking and, and, you know, into helping others. But at the time I thought, wow, if I could just make, you know, say $40,000 a year. Now at the time I, I was you know, 23 years old. So that, that seemed like a lot of money to me at the time. Um, said if I could buy enough rentals to, to make this my day job, then I can do the things I want to do. I can spend time with my friends and spend time with my wife and we can, you know, we can travel and do all these things. And of course, as time goes on and, and your, you know, your goals and your living expenses increase and just the things you want to do uh, and give back the way to give back in the world, you know, those goals have grown, you know, uh, immensely, <laughs> but um, but that was the biggest thing right at the time. Is just I just simply wanted to be able to make money because you know I saw uh, I grew up on a farm, and again it's not as though we were without money. But I saw you know I saw my parents struggle. My mom was a school teacher, you know, and I said, gosh, I, I don't want to have it that hard. You know, they always work to provide for us, but you know I didn't I didn't learn about money. They had a ton of debt, um, and I just knew there had to be a better way. Yeah. So, but it's, it sounds to me like your plan was to do some single family house investing. Is that right early on? I mean, that's kind of what, what my plan was early on. But if you were in your early twenties when you started this and you didn't quit your job until 2012, a lot of years has gone by since then, right? Yeah. So how did your yeah. plan work out from your early twenties and maybe why didn't it work out? So if I knew then what I know now, I mean, I would have just, you know, I would have, I would have bypassed that 10 years of working, but Ain't that at, the, truth? at the same at the same time, though, I, I had a what I think was still a really good day job. I was making multiple six figures of income. My wife and I were able to just pour a ton of capital in and self-fund our business. So, you know, where a lot of people will do joint ventures, they'll find a, a you know a wealthy partner to help bankroll their their enterprise. That that was us. You know, we self-funded the business. So when we left our day job, we were coming from a position of strength to where, you know, where we've capitalized our business ourselves. You know, we took a lot of that risk early on. So I don't regret that. I think I could have, you know, I I could have hacked some of the things that took me forever to to take action on, such as syndication. I mean, I started reading about syndication in maybe 07 or 08, and I never really took action on that until about 2018. But at the same time, everything we've done along the way is is work to our advantage. So I, I don't, um, I don't regret waiting that long. I just, when the time was right, the time was right. Yeah. I mean, I say the same thing. I don't regret anything I, I do though. Having said that, if I could tell myself, uh, my younger self, a few things, I would have done a few things differently, maybe more efficiently, possibly. Why did it take you so long to take action on syndications? Now, yes, you were, you were, had a pretty high income, but you know, and you could self-fund a certain things, but you know, now know that you could raise millions of dollars with syndications and yep. scale the business a lot faster. So why at the time did you feel like you didn't, you even knew about syndication? Why did you not take action at the time? So I had a, a honestly, it was a self-limiting belief is the basic answer. But I, I thought of it in terms of a partnership. And my frame of reference at the time was, why would I ever want to do a partnership? Why would I want to answer to all these people and have all these people calling the shots in this business? And I really like the control, you know, when we own something 100%. But I, did, I didn't frame it in the right the right way. And when I when I understood that I could get into larger properties, better properties, that I could serve more people. So, 
you know, in terms of, you know, our network of wealthy friends and, and family members and business acquaintances and whoever we meet that would invest in a, say, a syndication deal, you know, we're providing a lot of value to them. And you really see that right now when the markets are down, you know, down 30% with this, you know, with this coronavirus uh, thing. And, and it's just, a, you know, I, I think that we're providing a ton of value, allowing people to diversify into something else. But also, in terms of building a team, I'm, I'm you know, I still have the control I want. I'm, able to negotiate the deal, find the deal, run things and call the shots, but also bring in, you know, uh, my wife and I have a great co-sponsor who's also a uh, very well-known local business person. So that also strengthens, you know, strengthens our, our deal. And, and I think having that team just, just really positions, positions us well for the long term. So you're talking about a limiting belief saying, hey, um, you know, I, I will lose control. Now you're just telling me you ha- still have control. So it really was a limiting belief at the time. Yeah. Think back. What other things that you think now might have been limiting beliefs? You know, um, well, I think that I, I thought that we could serve everybody and that what I would just buy and hold real estate forever, you know, never sell anything. But sometimes it's good to take money off the table. Sometimes it's good to transition an asset into bigger properties. And so for a long time, I felt like I was going to hoard every piece of property I could. And we still have a lot of units in our home area. But I've also found that some of the folks and the mentors that that I encountered along the way, I needed to do for others what they did for me. And what I mean by that, you know, I, I was able to level up my investment experience in my portfolio at various stages throughout, you know, throughout our journey. I'd meet somebody that said, Hey, I've got 56 apartment units that I'll hold the paper on. You just need to come up with 10% down. And that was our first big transition. You know, that, that was in 2005. And that person let, basically let me a million dollars. But seven years later, when I, when I left my day job, he effectively let me another 2 million on, on property that he held the paper on. And I realized that sometimes there's a life cycle to certain properties or certain business strategies and it's okay. It's okay to exit some of those along the way. You don't have to stick with one thing for 30 years. You can evolve and adapt and grow. You said something interesting about serving people and you know, we're in the real estate investing slash syndication business really don't think of it that way, but in light of what's going on with the, with the wall street and everything like that, this elevates our mission to a possibly higher level. How do you, how, what kind of spin would you put on that? No, I, I agree. Um, you know, I, I've had a lot of friends that are lamenting the fact that their net worth has gone down by 30, 40% in the last, the last few weeks. And that's a reminder, you know, some of those that have invested in our syndication deals, I mean, they, they've asked how that's going. And I said, well, well, fine. The, the real estate is still worth what it is. You know, we have plans in place to make sure that we really don't miss, miss a beat. Or if, if we do, it, it's hopefully a minimal disruption. So I think when people see that there's another way to protect their money, and, and that's, uh, I guess, the, the downside to real estate is it's not liquid, but the, the nice side to real estate is that you can't sell off in a panic when you're just a limited partner in a syndication, and, and they can just have this predictable long-term investment. And I really stress the importance of that to, to our investors. You know, we, they still need to be diversified. You know, for me, I'm not very well diversified. I mean, it's, it's real estate. You know, I've got some single family homes and we have, you know, some couple hundred unit complexes, but for your average investor, it is good to be diversified. But, you know, if you're with a trusted owner, a trusted operator, you've got somebody with a steady hand that can kind of steer the ship during troubled times, it's all going to be fine. And you're going to have that predictability and stability that you need for the long term. 
And we're talking about the long term right now. We're recording this, uh, you know, by the time this comes out several weeks later, the world will literally be a different place because of this coronavirus situation. It, it literally changes by the day. So it's possible whatever we're saying here is completely irrelevant, though some people say that it may last weeks, possibly months. Now, you talked about the long term of multifamily. And while we're on the topic, the question in everyone's mind right now is, okay, great. But what about the short and medium term, right? Why is multifamily, what is your outlook for multifamily in the short term? And and really look at, you know, the next, say, three or four weeks sure. uh, that may affect your, your, your operations and look three, four months into the future. And, you know, how do you, how do you assess the outlook and the impact of the short term? Sure. Well, I'll, I'll approach it from two sides. So we self-manage our portfolio and our syndi- uh, units we syndicate. So I can speak to it from a property management standpoint, and I can speak to it from the syndicator standpoint. So we're crafting a letter right now with our passive investors that uh, we're prepared to make a, an April 15th distribution. So we're, we're nearing the end of Q1, you know, great quarter for all of our properties. But the letter is going to say something to the effect that, you know, look, although it was great, you know, there's a little bit of uncertainty right now. And we just want to see how April and May play out. And we will distribute the money as quick as possible. It's, it's sitting in a bank account in cash. But, you know, I think a lot of folks right now are, are very, maybe I'm wrong and, and I'm okay being wrong, but it feels as though people are very quick to jump on this forbearance train. You know, there, there's been these guidelines with agency debt that have talked about forbearance. And I'm like, and I understand the need to be prepared, but I'm like, my gosh, we, we're not even to April yet. Do you know if your tenants are not going to pay? And so, I mean, as, as we talk a little bit more about this from a syndicator standpoint, I'll tell you what we're doing on the, on the property management side and, and why I feel really strong about not just the short term, but the long term of this. So, so A, you know, we're preparing our investors to say, hey, here's, here's the distribution. We are on track. But you know, we believe in the importance of, of paying our bills that in the event that you have to enter into forbearance with, with a lender, there are restrictions and covenants that, that could be particularly difficult. And I think you'd only want to pull that lever in terms of the last resort. And I think, you know, if that means that as a general partner, I need to forego my distribution, you know, to make my investors whole next quarter, or that we just simply hold, the, you know, hold the cash for an extra month or two to see how things play out in the short term. And really, it's a matter of how does it play out with our tenants. I mean, at the end of the day, it's just how are the operations disrupted? You know, one other note along this, uh, you know, kind of the overall market outlook, it seems as most of the lenders we, we deal with that are very bullish about the fact that, you know, agency debt will still be in play. You know, Fannie and Freddie will continue to make loans. The biggest challenge is, you know, how, if we're practicing social distancing and certain areas are under lockdown or quarantine, how do you inspect the property properly? And so right now we have 127 unit under contract and a 95 unit that we're working to get, to get under contract. Well, that instead of a 60 or 90 day turnaround, that might be 120 or 150 days in order for all of the proper inspections and things to take place. Raising money wasn't the problem. We've been able to overfund our deals recently. And I think that that's, you know, even more so with the volatility in the market, the lenders are willing to lend the money. We've, have no hiccups there. It's just, are you going to get somebody to fly to Denver from, from Chicago or to fly to Erie, Pennsylvania? That's, you know, we have to be aware and, and work around those types of things and be very patient in the coming months. But, you know, as it relates to our investors outlook and, and, and the way our properties are, are, should be pictured as stable in my mind, I, I guess I would be worried if I was in the middle of a value add play where, the deal success is contingent on the fact that I have to push rents three, four, five hundred dollars. That that may give me pause and and probably reevaluate 
the situation. But we generally trying to buy properties where the stress test is that, hey, if we can, we could be 30% economically vacant and still pay our bills. Hey, we can be, you know, we may not make a distribution that quarter, but that would really have to take a major, major hit to not be, not be able to do that. And then we typically raise enough and, and have enough in the bank to have several months of working capital and, and try not to run too thin of an operation before these kind of crazy times like this where the world's going sideways. But practically speaking, you know, from, from our portfolio, from, our, from my vantage point, I mean, I would be lying if I said I wasn't scared but, uh, or a little bit afraid. But I think the thing is most of our tenants have made the effort, if, if they're disrupted by COVID-19, be it loss of a job, you know, they may be a waiter or waitress, might work in retail, entertainment, whatever the case is. They said, hey, I, I had to file for unemployment. I don't know when I'm going to get paid. So I don't know when, you know, when I'll be able to pay the rent. It might have to be in two or three times you know, during the month of April and May. And so I think extending that olive branch to our tenants to, to let them understand that we're willing to work with them to a degree. Like, number one, I mean, if their job's not affected by COVID-19, well, it's a moot point. They should still continue to pay their rent. If their job is affected, I think you have to have to have a heart and you have to have sympathy and and work with them. I mean, we're not in a position where we would forgive rent, but certainly, you know, we're we're in a position that you know you can waive you know waive late fees, uh, work out a payment plan with them, and, and you know maybe every month of disruption, you know if they, if they lose their job, say for two months, maybe you set up a payment plan for two or three, four months after that to let them get entirely caught up. But I I certainly wouldn't, wouldn't let them let a balance of rent accrue for, you know, for months and months on end without being able to take action. The biggest challenge might be if there's a, a, a mass group of tenants that say, well, you know, like, you know, screw you, Mr. Big Landlord, we're not going to pay our rent because we don't think we need to. You know, you might have that on a isolated instances, but I really think, and in my heart of hearts, I, I, you know, we treat our people well. You know, they understand that there's bills to be, to be paid. And what we've seen if this is any indication of, of just the human nature, if, if you treat people well, they'll treat you fine in return. You know, we had a, a girl that was supposed to be evicted on Friday, uh, this past Friday, which I know this might be a little dated when your podcast comes out, but it was March 20th was the lockout date. And locally, they had suspended all evictions for at least a month at that time. So her lockout date was then pushed back to like the end of April. Very well could have said, yeah, you know, forget this. I'm not going to pay. She owed about $1,500. Well, Wednesday night, you know, about 36 hours before the eviction was to occur, we received a money order at our office for $2,200. So she paid not only her balance, but paid April's rent. And we've had a few of those instances. Now, I have two evictions in process in our portfolio that they may, they may ride this out as long as they can. That's going to happen, but I don't, I don't see that at, like in mass. And so I'm hopeful and, and I'm pretty sure, I mean, yeah, so there's going to be disruption, but not... And, you know, I, I don't know if we're going to have 50% of the people just not be able to pay because there are economic safeguards. I mean, today might be the day that, that they pass this federal stimulus package and, and, you know, the vast majority of our tenants will benefit from that by getting income in their own pocket. And these folks are also going to have a beefed up unemployment package as well. So, so there should be the ability to pay, if not all, then definitely most of their rent. Yeah. So what I'm, here, I'm here's what I'm, I'm hearing you say and summarizing. A lot of it depends also on how long this is going to go, but there are safeguards built in on multiple levels. Number one, there are cash uh, safeguards with regards to you could withhold distributions. 
to fund the operation. Then you have certain operational cash reserves that would be next. And then third really would be uh, your break-even point is, you know, you you can be running 30, even potentially 40% vacant before you can no longer pay your mortgage. And if that were to fail, now these is potential forbearance laws. In other words, the probability of, of us losing our properties are fairly minimal because of those multiple layers. And then so, so that's kind of the worst case scenario. And then the other one is on the income side. What's going to happen on the income side? A lot of it depends on how bad and how long it's going to get. But it does sound like the government is putting measures in place that will allow people to at least get by for the foreseeable future. Uh, will some tenants take advantage of the situation? Yes, absolutely. But like you said, I think they're in the, in the minority. So short term, uh, what I see, I think it get a little bumpy. Uh, we may not be able to distribute as much or anything at all, just as a safe measure. I do think, I don't know what you're, I think we're going to come out as more like a, like a V-shaped recovery. I think once this thing goes away, people are just going to come out of their, you know, their, their holes and, you know, go back to the gym, go back to the restaurant, go back to wherever to the store. And now it's going to spring back pretty quickly. I think in my mind is the question is how long will it, will it go on? Right. Yeah. And that's the, that's the tough thing. I mean, it's a really, you know, this is affecting people's health. It's affecting the, uh, you know, the healthcare system and, and um, then people's pocketbooks. It's, it's not a, um, you know, gosh, I mean, it, it's, it's devastating all, all around, but you know, it, like, like all things, this too will pass. And I think, you know, we have to treat people kindly and compassionately and, and, and fairly, but you know, we all have, we all have businesses to run. And I think that if in mass, everybody just revolts and doesn't pay, well, again, like you said, they're, they're <laughs> going to for a forbearance program. There's, there's so many levers that can be pulled so that, multifamily owners, syndicators, even even the guys that own, you know, just a handful of say single family homes, that that people hopefully aren't going to lose their properties, you know, in, in this kind of economic cycle. You know, I think there's a lot of ways for people to to hang on, even if they're struggling, even if they're going through some sort of, you know, strange time with like a bridge loan or something like that. They're just gonna have to reevaluate their business strategy and dig deep. And and I think that uh, for the most part, hopefully everybody gets through this in one piece. Yeah, I think so too. I, the way I kind of look at the multifamily space, it's uh, it's like uh, it's like deep waters. There's waves crashing up above and then there's, you know, the quiet water beneath. Because at the end of the day, if we don't have to sell or refinance or do anything yeah. like that, we still have cash coming in. All right. And maybe it's not as much as we, we, you know, we, we had projected, but there's still cash coming in. We're just going to ride it out until it comes back and it'll come back. And what we're seeing in the meantime, interestingly, what you're seeing is we're actually already now uh, fairly early in the cycle, seeing buying opportunities in various interesting ways. Number one, sellers are becoming more flexible with the length of due diligence terms, even considering financing contingencies, because we don't know what's going to happen with a with a capital markets. Like you said, the due diligence now period takes longer. Getting inspectors out there, getting lenders out there, all that stuff. And also, if the income does go down the next two or three months, therefore valuations are going down. Right. Therefore, uh, even if you're under contract now, or we're about to go under contract, or we're going to get under contract, the valuation of that building is going to be lower than it was, say, three months ago. Right. Coupled with the uncertainty and the fear out there, people are like, owners like, man, I think I missed a boat. I should have sold six months ago, but I wanted too much money. And now all of a sudden they're motivated. So we're starting to see already, I mean, within days, buying opportunities and more flexibility where before it was like best and final and there's 30 people in the best and final round and, you know, and they're bidding up the prices. All of a sudden, within like days, we're seeing that crumble a little bit. So I think we're going to be okay on ownership side. It's going to get a little bumpy, but I think more importantly, it's going to open up buying opportunities. How, what are you seeing? Yeah, I agree. I mean, I think it was kind of getting like the Wild West out there for a minute where everybody's, I mean, 
I mean, like, you know, we see these deals across the country and, and how people were having to be so creative and come up with really unique strategies was amazing to watch, but also scary. And I think that, you know, I think that that's probably where people take a hit where, you know, you might be in a hot market where, you know, you're, they're really dependent on rent growth. And well, now if everybody's quarantined and can't, you know, can't work, it might be a little difficult to raise the rent four or $500 a month. So th- that's probably a position where some of those folks may want to get out of that deal just, you know, halfway alive or in one piece. So that might present some buying opportunity. But to your end, you know, if there's a, like sellers were getting, I don't say they're getting greedy, they were, they were reacting to the market. And, and, you know, if people were willing to pay a high dollar amount, it just became ultra competitive. I think it'll, folks that have a strong foundation in this business will be able to pick up some really interesting opportunities over the coming months and, and even years. Yeah, I think so too. I think right now we're seeing that people aren't doing anything. They're barely going to the store and, and getting toilet yeah. paper. Yeah. Uh, you know, we're seeing a major drop off in uh, the participants and best and final offers right now. It's just a competition. It's like they're just kind of sitting and watching. And to us who've been watching this for a long, we were really frustrated by our inability to get deals. We're like, man, this this might be a very close window. So we're kind of we're kind of excited about that as well. So now one of the things I noticed, you're in Erie, Pennsylvania. One of the things we always say is stay away from the more rural areas. And the reason <laughs> we say that, the reason we say that is, and, you're, and I'll, I'll get back to why you might be the exception, is because it's difficult to manage. So when yeah. you're tipping, most people are investing outside of their areas because we're living on the East Coast or the West Coast or whatever. And so we're buying in other parts of the area. So remotely managing uh, stuff in rural areas is a challenge because there might be only be one property manager. Yeah. And, and replacing that property manager might be a challenge or the next one is an hour or two hours away and your cost goes up, et cetera. Now, you're being successful in rural areas and there's always an exception to the rule. But talk about why it's working for you and what a listener or the watcher can, can learn from that. Sure. So uh, Erie, Pennsylvania, is not quite as rural as uh, other parts of Pennsylvania. So we are- That's uh, true. Yes. yes. You're, you're in the so, middle of nowhere, Pennsylvania. Yeah. You're actually in a right. fairly large metropolitan area. They, they call it Pennsylvania. You know, it's, it's all farms <laughs> in the middle of Pennsylvania. And, and I mean that with love uh, to our Kentucky friends and, and my central Pennsylvania friends. But it's uh, the greater me- metro area of Erie is 350,000 people. So- you know, there's 100,000 people in the city, but the surrounding suburbs, which is literally like five miles in either direction, it's, it's very close, is, is about 350,000 people uh, in, in the county. So, so that's, that's one thing. And we are equidistant from Buffalo, Cleveland, and Pittsburgh. So an hour and a half from each of those you know, more major metropolitan areas. So I mean, Erie's a little bit of a tourist town and not, not in the sense like you know, New York's a tourist town, but, you know, we get a lot of folks from those areas that come up here either in the winter for, you know, like, you know, fishing or skiing. There's some ski resorts nearby and they, and in the summertime, it's beautiful. So, you know, they've, they, there's a lot that people from those areas come, come in to do, and that helps drive the economy. We have the largest medical college in the country located in Erie. So there's a lot of influx of outside money that comes in here, but I would say for, so what's, what's nice, I guess, in a smaller market, as if you have a trusted operator. So if somebody's looking from a passive standpoint or if they're looking to syndicate, you know, we kind of fell into this organically. 20 years ago, I didn't know anything different other than, hey, I'm going to buy some duplexes and manage it myself. And as we grew, you know, we built our property management business, which only manages stuff that we own or that we own through, through syndicating. So I think that you are right. It is challenging because there are only a few companies in our town that property manage, do third-party property management. And I would have my concerns 
handing over the reins on the day-to-day operations to a company like that, especially during a crisis like this, where at least I know I can forego my payment until and my income to a later date, if that means keeping my investors whole or taking care of my tenants and things like that. So what's um, the thing that I've always said over the years about Erie and, and other tertiary markets is you know, oftentimes you don't see the economic booms but you never really see the bus. And, and right now, I mean, people in our town are hurting. I mean, all the restaurants are shut down. I mean, we're under pretty much a, a statewide lockdown. Only life-saving jobs or uh, companies are allowed to be open. You know, so we're adapting and doing what we can. But I think that, but again, with those economic safeguards, with unemployment, this federal stimulus, it might be a little bumpy, but I th- you know, I, I'm, I'm not overly concerned at this point yet. Because look, we're not even to April yet, and we're already receiving April rents. And that's, that's to me a positive sign of things to come. Now, one of the things that you're doing a little differently than some other people is that you decided to self-manage almost from the beginning, yeah. uh, certainly now. Why did you decide to do that? So in the beginning, I didn't know any different. Like the, the people I was seeking out in the business, you know, they owned at the time 20 units, 100 units, and, and that's what they did. And then uh, when I learned about property management, I said, well, wow, I'm making all this money. How do I, how do I hand over the reins to somebody else? But when it came to syndicating and raising capital, I felt that that track record that we had in terms of building our portfolio, managing, you know, so we, I mean, we started right around nine to let, you know, when nine 11 happened, but we continued to grow and we went through 2008 and those were both totally different scenarios than, than what's happening right now. But the fear is the same. Fear is fear. Economic upheaval is the same, it goes far and wide and it affects everybody. And I think being able to navigate through that gives our investors, you know, a sense of calm and, and uh, reassurance. My partner in the, in the syndications, has been in business, you know, he, he's a little bit older than I am, but in a totally different business, has that steady hand as well, that he's, he's also been able to be successful and be in a, in a family business that had lasted, you know, decades and decades. So th- there's the risk in that because that's your name and that's your reputation on the line, but this is where you earn it. You know, this is where, when you're able to keep a steady hand and guide your investors, guide these your properties and deals in a positive fashion through turmoil, I think that's really where like what'll be a huge feather in our cap, you know, w- when we get through all of this. Well, what do you think is important right now, getting through these tough times? What do you think is critical for you on syndicators in general? What is your advice yeah. to, to us to get through this time and try to keep everybody as calm as possible? Don't freak out. Stay calm. I mean, it's, uh, and that's hard, to, that's hard to do. I mean, we, I would be lying to say, you know, we, we all have those moments of fear where you're like, oh my God, I, you know, everything's going sideways. But but has it really? You know, you have to take a deep breath and look at things from a from a practical standpoint and take it as it comes. I mean, if if um, if all of a sudden a bunch of people aren't paying and the revenues hit, well, research the options. You know, talk to your banks to know that hey, if 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 I have to, you know, break this window in case of emergency, then then that's what I have to do. And and so talk to them ahead of time that if if you have to go into forbearance, you know, work out a deferred payment plan. You know, if you're working with regional banks, they're oftentimes very, uh, you know, uh, very comfortable in, in terms of making sure their clients don't, don't go belly up. Look at taking out any lines of credit. The SBA has some amazing programs out there right now to help small business owners. And, and, and some of this is unsecured. Anybody can get a $25,000 loan unsecured without posting any collateral. So maybe somebody's just starting out, but that, you know, that may be not, not a lot if you have, you know, 10,000 units, but even if you have 10,000 units, maybe start planning for that if you really are concerned that your operations are going to take a hit. But again, talk to your investors. If these deals are performing the way that, that you as a syndicator have sold to your investors, then you should be sitting on capital ready to deploy for your Q1 distributions. 
And if that's the case, you may just have to say, hey, look, I'll give you an example. I have a deal we did last summer. It was a 205 unit. And to meet our projections, we, we distribute about $100,000 per quarter. So we're prepared to make that $100,000 distribution on that deal April 15th. And I just use that because it's you know example because it's an even number. Well, if we send that letter we, to our investors and we talk to our investors and say, hey, well, look, we're, we're prepared to make this distribution, but you know, God forbid, you know, half the tenants don't pay their rent. Are we just going to like lay down and not pay our bills? So maybe it's best to hold that for a month or two, because again, that hundred thousand dollars would certainly cover a couple months of, in our case, you know, two months of mortgage and taxes. So I think, you know, if things have performed, you know, to this point well for you, then you should be in okay shape to ride a bumpy road the next few months. And, and, it certainly would not be a fun day to withhold distributions, but I can't imagine, you know, any sophisticated or passive investor. I mean, these are unprecedented times. You're going to be able to make this up to them in, in a larger way. It's not as though they're they're losing their investment the way they have in the stock market. No, that's right. And and by the way, just because you retain distributions doesn't mean they're they're actually gone. They're just sitting right. in your bank account in case you need Correct. them. And I think it's going to gain the respect of our investors to make sure that we don't make sure we never run out of cash. That's uh, my main yeah. lesson from the last recession is never run out of cash because if you do, your options are severely limited. And so having cash right now is is going to keep everybody safe. So one of the things I hear you saying is make sure you don't run out of cash. Yeah. Communicate frequently with your investors. Work with your tenants and uh, you know and don't panic. And right. I certainly panicked in the last recession because I was in a restaurant losing ten, twenty thousand dollars a month, and uh, that was pretty brutal for me. And uh, it really, <laughs> it really taught me the lesson to not panic. So, uh, anytime you go through something like this, you're much more resilient. And we see a lot of panic, a lot of fear, which does two things: either it paralyzes you, which is bad, or it makes you do stupid things too quickly, which is also bad. And right. and having a certain uh, degree of calm around you. Uh, allows you to make better decisions as well. So I think that's going to be key in having experienced, you know, operate like you and your partner are, is key in that. And your investors can feel good about the fact that you can guide them through that storm. What's your kind of your parting advice, uh, Jason, to, so we talked about, you know, operators, what should we do? Uh, past investors, what should we do? Someone trying to get into this business right now, uh, looking back on your own career, you know, what are some of the things that are, are guidance that you have for people? What's important? What should they do? And what should they pay attention to? I think one of the biggest things is to find a mentor, you know, find a coach, whether that's paid or unpaid. But, you know, it took me a long time to understand that importance of having people that are kind of further ahead on their learning curve that, that can help bring you along and just constantly seek to learn and seek advice and seek wisdom. I, I think that, you know, you can never be too humble in this business, you know, and that, that'll come back in, in spades. So keep learning and, and stay humble because, you know, some of the guys that are out there pounding their chest about how awesome they are and, and their businesses a month ago, you know, they may not endear the same type of love when they hit a bump in the road. So I just think that you know, stay humble, stay grateful. But the biggest thing to help launch that career is, you know, finding a coach. So I mean, listening to podcasts like yourself, and I know you you offer events and coaching and things like that. I just think that, and not to sell yours, I mean, any anybody, if you have a coach or you have a mentor, sometimes that's the best investment you can make. It's certainly better than having it in the stock market, because then at least you know how to take control of your destiny through good times and, and challenging times. That's interesting you say that. And that's one the one major mistake I made uh, when I first became an entrepreneur. At the time, I had a whole bunch of money from a software IPO. And I felt essentially invincible. And I felt I could figure it out. And if I didn't, I had plenty of money at the time. So I sunk it all in these restaurants. And what I didn't do is I didn't get a mentor or a coach for that. I was getting into a whole new business with a lot of money. I had no idea what I was doing. 
And I thought that was a good idea. And that was really the, and like you said, that, that, that investment, you know, people always ask, oh, well, you know, what's the return on investment? When you invest in yourself, by far is always, by far the biggest return on investment that you, that you get. So I agree with you. The challenge is not everybody can afford a mentor and, and that's okay. And you got to do what you got to do, but there are a good number of people out who can afford it. And they're like, well, should I invest this in the stock market? Should I use it to buy a property with it? Or should I get a mentor? And I think you agree. The answer is get a mentor. Yeah. Get a mentor. Now, why do you say that? I mean, I can come up with other, but you you, you I didn't actually prompt you to come up with a mentor. I no. think it's interesting that you went. Why did you go there? Well, when I reflect back and, you know, I've got two decades, nearly two decades of experience in this business and it's, you know, it's a roller coaster at times, but we credit a lot of my success to having good mentors and, and a lot of them were, were not paid. I mean, I may have ended up buying their property from them and things like that. So I guess you could say I paid the price, but just find somebody that has, that's, been where you want to go. And, you know, I think we live in a really giving industry and, and the guys, the, the old dogs that have been through this 20, 30, 40 years, you know, they'll tell you about the mistakes they made and they'll give you those, those warning signs and those guideposts and, and things that you can look out for. And, and I think a lot of people like to see others succeed and they're willing to give. And, and so, yeah, if you can't afford it, you know, listen to every podcast you can read every book you can and just seek somebody out that, you know, but you can afford a cup of coffee. You can certainly buy somebody a cup of coffee or, or a lunch uh, when we're allowed to meet face to face again, but that's the you know different time. But I, I mean, I think when you're when you actually make the financial investment and in, in finding a mentor, that then you're committed and you've bought into you know, kind of the magic that's going to happen. You're already eighty percent of the way there when you've chosen to take action. And I think that that way that you know a paid mentor or coaching program tends to keep people accountable because they they've made that investment and they said, Oh my gosh, I better <laughs> now I really have to take action because I, I've invested, I invested the capital, but I think there's nothing better you can do that work on yourself. And, and um, I mean, we're all a little bit worried right now, but, but again, the more you, it's a perfect time to, again, you have not, nothing but time on our hands. So listen to the podcast, look at, you know, watch YouTube videos, take a course, read a book. It's only going to do anything but prepare you to make that next investment and take those next steps in your investing career. You know, I agree with you. Right now, a lot of us are home, right? We have a yeah. lot of extra time on our hands. And now is really the great, great time to, you know, what I call shift, to make the shift right now. A lot of people are like, I'm going to get started with this because I'm going to quit my job. Now is the time where we have the time to, to educate ourselves, read a book, buy a course, sign up with a mentor. Now is the time because now we have the time. And I think we're also going to get buying opportunities. So I totally agree with you that now is a great time to kind of uh, to get that started and do the things that we said we'd always want to do. Jason, this has been great. A lot of great information and experience that you've shared over the last couple of decades. Uh, so thank you for that. How can people connect with you? Thanks, Michael. And I, I really enjoyed it. I hope you know, I hope it helps some of your listeners. And uh, uh, yeah, anybody can connect with me. I, I, I'm always happy to hop on a, on a Zoom call or a, or a call just to talk shop and strategize. So they can book something through Calendly forward slash Jason Paro. Connect with me on LinkedIn, Facebook. And if you want to put my email in the show notes, I'm happy to, happy to re, you know, have anybody reach out and connect with you that way. That sounds great, Jason. Thanks for being on the show today. Thanks a bunch, Michael. So the key lesson, if you own property right now, is to communicate often. 
both with your tenants and with your investor, because everyone's freaking out a little bit right now, okay? So make sure you communicate and work with your tenants, especially the good ones. If they have a good payment history and they got displaced by coronavirus, uh, we just work with those people because they're good tenants. They're good people. They're just uh, on short-term hard time. And then communicate with your investors because they, they're freaking out a little bit right now. The consensus among my peers is that medium term, we're going to be fine and uh, as well, because uh, once we get through this thing, it's going to bounce back uh, really, really quickly in our opinion. And also it's going to present it with buying opportunities. So this is a great time to get into this business, both as a, as a syndicator and also as a passive investor. Really, I'm just ex so excited about this multifamily investing class. It performed really well in the 2008 recession, which was really, really bad and sustained. I don't think this is one of those things that's kind of like a, a V-shaped thing in my, my mind. It really hit hot and heavy pretty badly. Worse, in my opinion, in 2008, uh, but for m much different reasons. And once it bounces back, it's going to bounce back with vigor. In the meantime, it gives us a window and prevents us with buying opportunities. So if you're a syndicator deal finder, we're already seeing some of the sellers back off of some of their requirements, their prices. Motivation is much higher. I think we're going to get some good buying opportunities. And if you're a passive investor, now is no better time to get into multifamily deals uh, and start pulling out some of your money on, on Wall Street. So if you're interested in that, and you're interested more about investing in multifamily versus the stock market, check out my free report called What's the Best Investment, Stocks or Real Estate? And you can get that at themichaelblank.com forward slash report. I think you're really going to enjoy that. If you're ready to take a next step, then join our investment club at Nighthawk Equity. That's nighthawkequity.com forward slash join. And then have a conversation with us. And then we can share with you some of our upcoming opportunities that we have. Now, Jason also talked about mentoring. And I would be remiss to mention the mentoring program. If you are more of an active investor and you have the ability to invest in yourself, right now is a great time to do it. It's going to be a great time to find deals right now as well as to raise capital. And if you believe in mentoring, you have the ability to invest in yourself. Check ours out. It's at themichaelblank.com forward slash mentor. And like so many things, it starts with a conversation with us to see if that's a fit for you. Uh, I do believe we have the most comprehensive program on the planet for helping you become financially free. We cover every single aspect from getting started to scaling your business. In fact, we call it the blueprint of financial freedom. We've done it so many times. Really excited about that. So check us out at themichaelblank.com forward slash mentor. I think with, uh, with all these things going on, make sure you guys stay calm, stay safe, Take the time to spend with your families and work on your spirituality, perhaps, and stay calm and invest in yourself. Now is a great time to do that, kind of a little bit lull on the action, but it's going to be great and opportunity-wise. So thank you for so much for listening, for watching if you're on YouTube. Catch you guys next episode. Thanks for listening to the Apartment Building Investing Podcast with Michael Block. For more free podcasts, articles, and videos, go to the Michael Block. Com. There, you can also download the free ebook, The Secret to Raising Money to Buy Your First Apartment Building. Till next time.